And good morning. Wow. It's been a long time. It's great to see some of you here in the sanctuary. Great to be together in person worshiping God. It's been a long time. Kind of gotten used to the other way, and this is uh, kind of like a new world all over again. Some comments from the congregation I will not repeat into the microphone for those of you who are trying to worship God at home. We finished at a great place, and part of me just is ready to jump to communion and uh, head on home. Uh, But uh, here's where I started. How many of you were Scooby-Doo fans growing up? Uh, How many of you watched Scooby-Doo on Saturday mornings or Scooby-Doo reruns along the way? Some people are still watching Scooby-Doo. So a lot of fond memories. Yeah, there you go. Still watching some fun Scooby-Doo. And there's Scooby-Doo movies now. There didn't used to be Scooby-Doo movies when we were kids, but we watched uh, Saturday morning cartoons. I don't know if those still even exist. Uh, Anyone remember what was written on the side of the Scooby-Doo gang's van, the ubiquitous van? The Mystery Machine, way to go, Labrada. Uh, little love for you out in Cyberworld on the live stream. Yes, The Mystery Machine. Everyone loves a mystery, and every episode of Scooby-Doo involved a mystery, right? I mean, it was basically the same plot every week with sort of a little bit different characters and things like that, but always a mystery that Scooby-Doo and his friends we're trying to solve. We all love a mystery. We all love a good mystery book, a good mystery movie, a good mystery to sort of try to solve. There have been uh, unlimited numbers of mysteries over the course of human history. How did the Egyptians build those pyramids? No one really knows for sure. Stonehenge in England, uh, how did they get those rocks up there? How did they align it so well with uh, the stars, the moon, the sun? And what did it all mean? We don't really know. Uh, The Bermuda Triangle, that sort of area between Bermuda and Puerto Rico and Florida where for uh, centuries ships just disappeared, it seemed. What was going on with that? What may still be going on with that? The Malaysia Airlines, uh, Amelia Earhart, uh, what happened to her? That's a mystery. The Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, that's a mystery that may never be solved despite our biggest efforts. In the Bible, there's the Ark of the Covenant, and we don't really know whatever happened to that. You remember some of you saw some of the Raiders of the Lost Ark movies trying to discover and sort of tap into that whole mystery. And then there's the mystery of how and why some people can't seem to live without Starbucks, as if it's an essential like air and water for life. Like, right, don't you know some people like that? Like, give me some Starbucks uh, or else I'm going to die. John there in the back. And then there's the mystery of why some Presbyterians can so easily raise their hands and shout and scream in praise and excitement at a sports game but can't do so in the sanctuary. Right? Is that sort of another strange mystery that we're trying to figure out but somehow can't figure out? Yeah. And then there's the mystery that runs through most of the Gospel of Mark, and that's uh, what will be our focus this morning as we continue in our study of Mark's Gospel. Before we get into that, though, let me pray for us real quick. God, quiet our minds, our hearts, 
even our wills. Help us to be uh, attentive to you and to your word. Uh, Set aside the distractions. Forgive our wayward minds. Help us to be attentive to your spirit, to your way, to your will, and most of all now to your word. Give us eyes that are good to see, hearts that are fertile soil to receive your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word and consistent with your word, may they be embraced and received and taken in. Plant uh, within us things that will grow and bring you glory. If my words are in any way inconsistent with your word, may they be uh, not even heard or quickly forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So hopefully you remember now verse 1 from Mark's gospel. It serves uh, and functions as, my, as Mark's title and introduction and thesis statement all sort of rolled into one. So let's say it together. I think it's going to be up on the screen there. There you go. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, the Son of God. And everything in Mark's gospel will flow out of that statement and prove the veracity of that statement and unpack the significance of that statement for the world and for each one of us, for each of our lives. And after that, Mark continues quickly, succinctly, at a faster pace than the other gospels. He tells us about John the Baptist in the desert, preparing the way for Jesus Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit appears, seems to come down from the heavens and rest on Jesus. And these words come out of heaven. This is my son, my beloved son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. A sort of ordination and affirmation. Then Jesus being tempted in the desert by the by Satan, Jesus calling his first disciples, and then last week, Jesus driving out an evil spirit in a synagogue in Capernaum to demonstrate, or in order to demonstrate, his power and his authority. First in Mark's gospel over demons, but that is just the beginning. His authority as Messiah Christ, his authority as Son of God. That brings us this morning to verse 29 in uh, chapter 1 of Mark's gospel. Listen closely. This is the word of God. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. The the is Jesus and his now first four disciples and maybe a few others who were tagging along. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. And in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel, we'll be told that Jesus gave Simon the name Peter. So we know him as Peter. His first name was Simon. Peter means rock. Simon's or Peter's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So Jesus went to her, took her hand and held her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. We're going to talk about this a little bit more next week. Verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door of this house and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And it's this curious last sentence that will be our primary focus this morning, but first a couple of other things. It was the Sabbath, it was a Saturday in the previous section, which we read last Sunday. Jesus and his disciples had been in the synagogue. Jesus had either been asked or allowed or prompted or chose on his own to preach, teach, speak that day in the synagogue. 
And after the Sabbath worship and celebration, as was traditional, they would retire to someone's home, usually their own home or the home of a family. And Jesus goes with Peter and his brother Andrew to their home along with James and John and maybe a few others. They go for this meal that was a traditional meal that everyone ate on the Sabbath, maybe the biggest meal of the week. And they get there and Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. And so uh, they all point Jesus to this fact, whether they knew it or not when they left for synagogue, we're not clear. But according to the law of Moses, people began to show up at this house gathering and it was a sacred time. And so the people brought after, this, after the synagogue meal was over, after sunset, when the law of Moses said it was okay to again do work, people from around, people who had heard, pick up those who are lame, pick up those who are sick. And knowing that Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law and that he had already cast out demons, people just start bringing other people, bringing friends, bringing relatives, however they can to the front of this house. Because now after sunset, the law of Moses permits them to do work. And so Mark reminds us, Mark tells us that the whole Judean countryside, as he told us earlier in Mark's, in Mark's gospel in the previous section, as the whole Judean countryside went out to hear John, so Mark says now the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, all the townspeople gathered at the door. And so we see already early on this theme of everyone coming to Jesus. All kinds of people went out to John in the wilderness. Now all kinds of people flock to Jesus. And people sought out Jesus because of the demons he'd healed, because he was casting out, because he had power, because he had authority, word had gotten out. And so almost immediately this massive crowd they can hear them through the walls. They can hear them through the door. The voices, the rumbling, the crying out of the demons. The wailing and pain of people. This massive group of people outside their home. People wanting to be healed, needing to be healed, looking for Jesus. All sorts of diseases, conditions, situations, fevers, whatever. And Mark says that Jesus healed many who had various diseases and he also drove out many demons. And Mark's use, your use of the word many doesn't mean that he only healed some of those who showed up with diseases and some of those who possessed demons, but rather indicates that he healed all who came and were brought to him and that all was not two or three or four or five or ten or fifteen, but it was many. It was dozens and dozens and hundreds and eventually thousands. And Jesus healed them all. Jesus cast out all of the demons. And then Mark writes this curious line that will be our focus this morning. But Jesus would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And this is consistent with what we read last Sunday morning in the passage before this one. Jesus was in a synagogue. Jesus' presence somehow exposes or draws out demons. When light comes into a space, it exposes darkness. The demon cries out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. For whatever reason, the demons always knew more and better who Jesus was and about Jesus than the people who were there. And this demon cries out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And to him, Jesus surprisingly said, be quiet, shut up. 
silence. And Jesus would not let the demons speak here outside of Peter's house because they knew who he was. Why did Jesus silence the demons in the synagogue? which at least were speaking truth at that time. Why did Jesus silence them then? Why does he silence them here? They were affirming his true identity. Why did they do it then? Why did they do it now? Why do they do it throughout Mark's gospel? Why did Jesus do this throughout Mark's gospel? The secrecy motif pervades Mark's gospel. Three times earlier in Mark's gospel, Jesus silences demons. Four times after performing miracles, Jesus commands silence. Twice Jesus withdraws from crowds to escape detection, notice, attention. And in various other ways in all four of the gospels, but especially in Mark's gospel, Jesus practices secrecy about his identity, especially early on, but throughout. And we have to understand and we ask ourselves why he withholds complete information. He gives private instructions. He reveals some things only to his closest followers. And the question is why? And the mystery is why? We ran across it last week. Here it is this morning. We'll see it over and over in Mark's gospel. It baffles me. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense to me. I want to know why. We have the Great Commission. We talk about evangelism. We talk about how to share our faith and training one another and encouraging one another and how to share our faith. We think and pray about creative ways to introduce non-Christians and post-Christian people in our culture to Jesus and the gospel. And here is Jesus seemingly working against this mission. What gives? Of course, on the one hand, I take this mystery as evidence and proof that someone or someone's didn't just fabricate Mark's gospel and the other gospels and the whole message of Jesus if someone would have, if someone had, if that's all the gospels were and are, if they were merely fiction meant to trick or delude or fool or mislead rather than be reliable historical documents and the word of God as they are. The authors of Mark and the other gospels certainly would not have come up with this mysterious behavior on the part of the protagonist, right? They surely wouldn't have written into the narrative such a confounding thread. It wouldn't have made sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. And so I take this thread of mystery as evidence and proof that the gospel of Mark is true. It is true and it is reliable. And that Jesus was and remains exactly who they described him as being from beginning to end. Every bit of him. And yet I still want to know, Scooby-Doo, how do we solve this mystery on our hands? What does it mean? What's it all about? How to solve the mystery? There have been several explanations. First, and particularly about Jesus silencing of demons who announced and declared who he was also. The scribes or the teachers of the law associated, associated Jesus with Beelzebub, the prince of demons. 
We'll see this in chapter 3 of Mark's gospel. Out of jealousy and fear and uncertainty of what to do with someone who had the power Jesus clearly had and the authority which Jesus clearly had when he taught and when he cast out demons. The teachers of the law asserted that this Jesus must be doing these things by the power of the devil because he wasn't one of them and they were godly people. Second, to accept the testimony of demons about of demons about himself would have given a precedent to his followers, Jesus' followers, to accept and maybe even seek out the testimony of demons about other things, which would have threatened to make Jesus' movement an occult movement, appealing to demons. And Jesus was committed, as we saw through his temptation in the wilderness, in Matthew and Luke's gospel in particular, that Jesus would not receive the kingdom of this world from the devil, nor would he ever receive help assistance or affirmation from the devil or his agents in his mission. Never. He wouldn't. And third, Jesus just simply didn't need the testimony of demons. His ministry and his message would be communicated in word and deed and by witness successfully apart from them. Jesus didn't need their contributions. He didn't want their contributions. That's the demons. But what about the people that Jesus healed whom he often told to keep their experiences of being healed to themselves, to keep a lid on it, to stay silent? But why? Why them also? The most practical reason for such was the real problem that all of the publicity created for Jesus. And the next section of chapter 1 of Mark's gospel we'll read about in a week or two. We'll read about a man Jesus healed of leprosy who as a result, quote, because of the crushing crowd, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly because of the crushing crowds. As we already see in front of Peter's house, which is just a small thing compared to how things are going to blow up. And while most preachers like and love a big crowd, this made life and the sort of ministry Jesus wanted quite difficult at times. In fact, the crowds got so bad and maybe dangerous even early on that Jesus' family wanted to take Jesus back into protective custody. We'll see in chapter 3. That's one reason, the practical aspect and maybe the danger of these crowds early on. And then there's this idea, especially in the Gospel of Mark, of the modesty of Jesus, which is in and of itself surprising that one who would be Messiah and Son of God would be modest, that he would be humble, that he would not be an attention seeker, that he would not seek everyone's attention for himself, at least not at that time, that he would go through his calling and in obedience quietly and humbly. And this is what Jesus did regularly, uh, pushing away the crowds, not looking for more and more attention. He heals, raises someone from the dead later on in Mark's gospel and says, be quiet about this. Okay, how can you be quiet? He was dead and now he's alive. Jesus doesn't want an invitation to every funeral. He's got other things in his mind to do and to be about. There's this idea of modesty, this idea of humility. And it's tied to and it's connected to another idea in Mark's gospel in particular that Jesus was the servant king, that he was the servant God. Isaiah 
writes these four sections or poems in his prophecy that are called by scholars the servant songs that look forward to one who will come from God, who will lead, who will serve, who will carry burdens, who will take up other people's sins. And Jesus fills this role and he embraces this role. But instead of the majestic and powerful king, he's the servant king. And then there's this, the literary center point of Mark's gospel at the end of chapter 8. Mark's gospel is 16 chapters long. At the exact halfway point of his gospel, we read Jesus interacting with his disciples most of the way through his ministry now. Jesus, verse 27, chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? As if this is the all-important question. Because people have been asking along the way, who is this? In the synagogue last weekend, what is this? Who is this? And now Jesus puts the question to his disciples themselves, his closest friends and followers after three years. Who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And we think this is going to be a turning point in Mark's gospel where Jesus cuts loose and says, go, you got it right. Tell everyone. Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the anointed one. The Christ, Peter's grand confession, the subtitles in our uh, Bibles the editors have written. Peter's proclamation, his confession, and Jesus' response to Peter is, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And this is curious. But we can understand a little bit of what's going on here when we understand the term Messiah. You are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one. We, in our Christian traditions and in our Christian bubbles and in our Christian lives, have understood Messiah in one way. As the fulfillment of all of this prophecy in the Old Testament that Jesus clearly fits in every way, shape, or form. But the truth and reality is that the people in Jesus' time understood the term Messiah or anointed one in at least three different ways. First, they understood that for some, there was no need for a Messiah. They weren't looking for a Messiah as long as the temple was functioning, and it was at that time until at least 70 AD. And sacrifices were being offered, and Israel had its place of worship Many in Israel felt like they had no need for a Messiah and they were not looking for a Messiah. The people out in uh, the Qumran community by the Dead Sea had another perspective. They thought there would be two Messiahs, that there would be one Messiah who came in the priestly tradition of Aaron. And he would shepherd the people in a priestly way. And a different, a second Messiah would be in the line of David and he would be a king. And then there was a very third, very clear group of people who thought that the Messiah would be strictly a political person, a politician who would overthrow, a revolutionary who would disrupt, uh, a powerful political figure who would help them overthrow the occupying Roman government. 
And this may have been the most important understanding of that time. Because if everyone was calling Jesus Christ, if everyone was calling him Messiah, if everyone was calling him the king who has arrived, that certainly gets the attention of the Roman government and will squelch his ministry early. He's spending time in the outer lands at this point, up in Galilee, Capernaum, and in the hills outside of Capernaum because he wants to sow the seeds. He wants to give his disciples time to know and understand who he was in the fullness of who he was and who he would be. And so he says to them, do not tell people who I am until I have been raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. And Jesus will not let people, he will not let people affirm who he is until they know all of who he is. He will not go public with just a little bit. Jesus refuses to be just one who casts out demons. He refuses to be just one who heals fevers. He refuses to be just one who heals leprosy, who raises the dead. Jesus refuses in being Messiah King and Son of God to be limited in all of these ways and others. And so he says, wait until you really get and own the full picture and have the full understanding. Wait until I have been raised from the dead. And included to that is wait until I have been crucified. Many of us today, many in the church, many churches want a Messiah, want a Jesus, want a Son of God who is merely a good teacher, merely a friendly mascot, merely a sweet Savior, merely uh, a kind presence who doesn't speak hard words, who does what we want, who's a butler and a Santa Claus and whom we can call on when we have a need. We really live in a world that revolves around ourselves and a worldview that revolves around me. And Jesus says, no, it's all about me. In the beginning, I was. I created, I'm divine, I'm one with the Father. I am love and I've come to heal and redeem, to die and to be lifted up that I might be glorified, that the Father might be glorified, that all people might be made one and reunited in God's family and do a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of joy and do a kingdom of love. I am so much more, Jesus insisted, than simply one who has the power to heal, more than one who only speaks authoritatively, more than one who can cast out demons. Lots of people can cast out demons. New Testament scholar James Edwards wrote this. Until the consummation of Jesus' work on the cross, all speculations about him are premature. Only the cross can, only on the cross can Jesus rightly be known for who he is. Until the confession of the centurion at the cross in Mark chapter 15. All utterances about Jesus, and especially those coming from members of the rebellion, are either premature or false. I'm going to read that again because I think it's really rich and important. 
Until the consummation of Jesus' work on the cross, all speculations about him are premature. Only on the cross can Jesus rightly be known for who he really, truly, fully is. Until the confession of the centurion at the cross, all utterances about Jesus, and especially those coming from members of the rebellion, in other words, demons, and sometimes Jesus' followers, are either premature or false. In many ways, that's who we are. We want Jesus to be this. We want Jesus to be that. We want Jesus to be who we want Jesus to be. And he says, no, no, no. Wait until you see the whole picture. Wait until you get the big picture. Wait until you fully understand. And then go, proclaim, shout, announce, tell. There will be a time. And in the narrative of Mark's gospel, that time isn't yet here. It's here for us. We know how the story ends. We know the big picture. We're reading backwards. But for them, it wasn't there yet, and they had to wait, wait, wait. We are at that point where, in a culture, again, that has lots of religious figures, lots of different ways, lots of paths, many of which, all of which are okay, whatever works for you. They're all the same. And Jesus says, no. There's one cross. There's one resurrection. There's one Messiah. There's one Son of God. There's one King. There's one Shepherd. There's one Rabbi. There's one Savior. It is Jesus. Let's pray together. We are the crowds, God. We are the crowds. We are the disciples, but we are also the people who have gathered outside of the door of Peter's house. We've come. We have ideas. We know things. We've seen. We've heard. We've witnessed. We trust people who have seen, heard, witnessed. We have needs. We have wants. We have fevers of all sorts. We have fevers, metaphorically, that afflict us. Wounds injuries, debilities. We ask God that you would help us to come with open eyes to who you are, to the door, to the foot of the cross, with all of those people bringing our needs, bringing who we are, but mostly bringing ourselves to bow before you, to honor you, to receive from you, but to bring you glory and to praise you to hear your voice, to understand your truth, to proclaim the fullness of who you were, the most unique person who's ever lived, the incarnation of God, God in flesh, Savior, Messiah, King. We ask that you would heal us physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially, wholly, Draw us into yourself, redeem us, continue to heal, continue to save, restore to us the joy that somehow came out of the awfulness of the cross where we find our salvation, where we find forgiveness, where we find mercy, where we find grace. 
Heal us, redeem us, save us. We pray in the name of Jesus, who taught his disciples to pray together with these words. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.